Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Last night, a great night for Atlanta. A bad night for Philly. And an absolutely horrible night for Ben Simmons. But before I get to the bad, and the bad truly was terrible, how about we do something positive? How about we shine some light on the positive? I'm going to do that because the bad was so bad that the bad is overshadowing the positive, and that's not right. The positive is the Atlanta Hawks because these guys are tough as hell. They were sub-500 in late February. Nobody thought that team was a playoff team, let alone a team that could make it to the conference finals, right? And then somehow, that all changed. Somehow, someway, that all changed. Actually, I know exactly how that all changed. Nate McMillan stepped in, and he's a damn wizard. And I say that as somebody who really likes Lloyd Pierce. But this is a completely different team under Nate McMillan. Man, they are tough as hell, they're clutch as hell, and they are really, really good. And it's not just Trey Young, although Trey Young is amazing. They have guys like Kevin Herter, the stone-faced assassin with maybe the best nickname in the entire association, Red Velvet. Red Velvet was smooth last night. How about this bucket with just under four minutes to go? This is the matchup right here. Herter against Curry. Herter spins to the middle, puts it up. It's good. Herter at 6-7, having a big night tonight. That was sweet. Red Velvet. Then Trey Young shook off a horrible shooting night to come up with a couple of huge plays. That says so much about Trey. The guy could not make a shot. Could not make a shot. Did not matter. He has so many other ways to help his team and so many other ways to beat the opposition. He had this alley-oop to Clint Capella. Takes out his son-in-law for George Hill. Scramble down. Late clock. Up top. Capella throws it down. So sweet. And again, like any great shooter, it does not matter how many shots that this guy has missed leading up to the moment. If he's open or even if he's not, he's going to let it rip. Made him shoot that shot a little harder. Two and a half to go. Long three on its way. And Trey Young, ice cold, delivers a three. Like from 30 feet, nothing but net. And this is what I'm saying about these guys. The Hawks, man, they are so tough. They are so tough. They're on the road in a game where their star is not shooting well at all, and the entire team steps up until the star, who never gives in, who always thinks that the next shot is going down, no matter how many he's missed, finally does step up when they need it most, and he comes through. I mean, so impressive. So impressive. Trey is, and so are the rest of the Hawks. Really, really impressive and really tough. And even when they had two bad trips down the floor in crunch time, and it looked like they might let it get away from them, you've got Kevin Herter capitalizing on a bad foul to hit three free throws, and then finally this. Embiid, got Gallinari on him, spins, lost the handle. Gallinari got a piece. Up is Gallinari, down it goes. A Philadelphia turnover. And that's how you ice a game. That's how you win a Game 7 on the road. That's how you advance to the conference finals for the first time in, like, forever when no one anywhere outside that locker room saw that coming. And respect has been so slow in coming for these guys. And now that they're finally getting some, they're still not getting nearly enough. Look, I know it's really easy to say that Philly went into the tank under the pressure. But it was the young Hawk, Hawks who applied that pressure, 
who put that pressure on them. They won games five and seven in Philly. They went into MSG and they shut the loudest, most hostile crowd in the league up. And then they did it again in Philadelphia. And now they're going to face the Bucs. And they've got a legitimate look at going to the NBA Finals. I mean, can you even imagine saying something like that? The Atlanta Hawks have a legitimate look at the NBA Finals in the year 2021. If you look at the numbers, the odds makers sure as hell don't think they've got any shot. But Jim Rome does. Hell, I like them enough that I just went third person on their ass. Because these guys aren't just good, man. They're tough. They're confident. And... You got a team Twitter account taking a run at Philly and the process by posting two pics of Trey Young with the caption, quote, still processing this moment. And it's sweet. And then on top of that, you got John Collins showing up to his postgame media availability, wearing a shirt with a photo of his game six poster job on Joel Embiid. Man, that is so cool and really brass. So that's the Atlanta side of things. I want to make sure that before we do anything else and pile on Philly, you give Atlanta the credit they have so richly earned. Because then there is the Philadelphia side of things. And that side is ugly, like hideous, like revolting. Instead of trusting the process, trust trust this. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. Because it's not just about the fact that Philly lost Game 7 at home. That's bad enough. It was about this play. Or should I say, the play that did not happen. Simmons, they cleared out for him. Backing his way in. Spins off Gallinari. Gives it up. Oh, he was right there. And a foul as Thibel goes to the basket. Boy, Simmons, uncontested, had a layup, but he leaves it for Thibel who makes something out of it and is headed to the line. Well, but that's when you know that the game is in your head. That's a dunk for Ben Simmons right there. You got to, and I know you got to disciple, you got the free throws, but Ben Simmons, you got to shoot that shot. Shoot that shot? How about you just rise up and throw it down? I mean, I've seen that play 30 times and I still can't believe it. That was unreal. I mean, that was unprecedented. The play that is going to echo from that game is the one that didn't even happen. The dunk that did not happen. Look, I'm not going to pretend to be inside the head of Ben Simmons on that play. But I'm pretty sure Ben Simmons was inside the head of Ben Simmons on that play. In fact, I know he was. I know he was because I have never seen a guy so far in his own head like that guy on that play. This dude is so far in his own head, he practically came out the other side. You can hear the reaction, literally hear the reaction in the moment that it happens. Simmons has the defender back down. He spins baseline. He's open for the easiest dunk of his life, a dunk that's going to tie that game and rip the roof right off the building, and he doesn't do it. Alvin, run that back again, and I want the rest of you to listen to the crowd reaction the moment the ball leaves his hands on a pass. Simmons, they cleared out for him. Tapping his way in. Spins off Gallinari. Gives it up. Oh, he was right there. And a foul as Thibel goes to the basket. Boy, Simmons, uncontested, had a layup, but he leaves it for Thibel. Maybe you can't hear it as clearly, but if you listen for it, it's there. Either way, there's confusion. There's rage. 
There's anger. I mean, you could basically hear, practically hear, the entire city of Philly printing a plane ticket for Simmons to leave town. I mean, essentially, that that's the sound of everybody jumping online to start tweeting about trade rumors. What can we get for this guy? Who will take this guy? Hey, look, I know he's struggling with a shot right now. Really struggling. We know that he doesn't even want to take a shot right now. But that's not a shot. That's not a perimeter shot. That's not a mid-range shot. That's not a jump shot. That's a dunk. He's 6'10". He can throw that down with ease. That is the easiest shot he's ever going to have to take. And yet he kicks it out. Philly gets fouled. They only hit one of two free throws. Then they lose at home as the number one seed. Passing up a dunk in the fourth quarter? They would have tied game seven? Who does that? I got a better question. Who does that and then comes back to play for that same team next year? Because after that game, it sure didn't seem like his head coach or his teammates or his star teammate were looking to have him back or even have his back. Doc Rivers was asked if Simmons can be the point guard on a championship team, and this is what Doc said. Doc, do you think Ben Simmons can, can still be a point guard for, for a championship team like the one you guys want to become? Yeah, David, I don't know that question or the answer to that right now. Um, you know, so I don't know the answer to that. The only thing missing from that was a JC blast. David, I mean, JC. Listen, it's a pretty honest answer, right? Because saying that you don't know the answer to that question is, in fact, answering the question, right? Let me decode for you what Doc Rivers said. Doc said, quote, I don't know the answer or the answer right now, so I don't know the answer to that. When he says that, what he's really saying is, no, Ben Simmons is not the guy for a championship team. Not when he doesn't even have enough confidence to throw down an uncontested dunk in Game 7 when we need it most. So that non-answer from Doc was the most obvious affirmative answer ever. Yeah, and as for Doc, things are not going so well for him either right about now. That's another bad playoff loss for him. And while the Sixers get knocked out in a series that most expected them to win, the team that he used to coach, the Clippers, are in the Western Conference Finals. So, hell yes, that's a bad look for Doc. Great coach, great dude, bad, bad look. And yes, a chunk of this is on Doc, but again, even more so on Simmons. Like if Ben Simmons, a three-time All-Star, and allegedly one of the best players on the planet, doesn't want to take a dunk that could change the game, what is Doc supposed to do about that? Doc can't go out there and dunk it for him. If your number two player attempts a total of three shots in the fourth quarter, how much of that's on the head coach? And I'm not saying, this is incredible now, I'm not saying he attempted three shots in the fourth quarter last night. I'm saying he attempted three shots in the fourth quarter in the entire series. Two for two in game one. One for one in game three, and that's it. Like, this dude is allergic to shooting it in the fourth quarter. And then back to the big fella, who you know I love. You know I love Joel. But Joel is not without blame either. He did turn it over eight times, including the one that sealed the game for Atlanta. But at least he's not passing up dunks. 
At least he actually looks at the basket in the fourth quarter of games. So I got some really bad news for you, Philly fan. I know you want to run Simmons out of town on a rail. I get that. You're not wrong to feel that way. They should trade him. Because at this point, there's no way to trust the process. Unfortunately for you and the rest of the organization, after the way he played last night and in the series, there's no way you're going to get value for this guy, especially after last night. Even worse, you know what's going to happen? You move this guy, you don't get what you should get for this guy, and then somehow he ends up someplace else, and he does figure it out. And then you're stuck eating horse crap sandwiches for the rest of your lives. So what I'm saying to you is, it brings me back to my original point. What a horrible night for you. A horrible night for you, Philly fan. A worse night for the organization and the worst night ever for Simmons. And it's only just beginning. And it's going to get a hell of a lot worse before it gets any better. Oh, and as far as that dunk that Ben passed up, he was asked about that afterwards. You gave up a dunk opportunity right there. And I know you're a pass-first guy, but you're also 6'10 and 240. Is there something going on in your head where you, you just feel like you can't shoot at some times? No, nah, I just assumed Gallo was coming over my back. Um, and then Collins moved out. And so I thought we just had a wide-open dunk. Thank you. Yeah, uh, you're not helping him. You're hurting him. And you shouldn't be passing up wide-open dunks in Game 7, man. You shouldn't be talking about it on the radio, man. Never say anything like it. Hey, let me ask you something. Can your office chair give you a massage while you're sitting at your desk? Mine can. Can your office chair warm your back on cold mornings or cool you off on hot days? Mine can. That's because I don't have any old no-name office chair. I have an X chair, and I absolutely love it. The secret is their patented dynamic variable lumbar support which offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back and now introducing LMAX. The secret is their patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers incredible lumbar support to your lower back and now introducing LMAX, featuring cooling, heat, and massage therapy. It is incredible. And LMAX offers four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy for your sore back. You will not believe the X-Chair difference until you feel the X-Chair difference for yourself. It is time to trade in your old, uncomfortable office chair and trade up to an X-Chair. X-Chair prices are going up on July 11th for the first time in two years, so beat the price increase. Go to xchairrome.com. That's the letter X chairrome.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR and save $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairrome.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel blade casters. xchairrome.com Host of Boxing with Chris Mannix Podcast. My man is busy, good friend of the program. He is back. Chris, what's going on? How are you? What's going on, Jim? Dude, how you doing? I'm good, man. We're uh, kind of light at the end of the tunnel here with the NBA season, so I'm, uh, I'm uh, looking forward to, to that and, 
yeah, you know, going to the, start to go to some conference finals games. Uh, so a little bit more normalcy every uh, every passing week. I know. It feels good, right? It feels good. So let me talk to you this first about Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and the Sixers. A lot to talk about around the league. But if we jump right into it, did we just see, Chris, the final game of Simmons and Embiid together? If I had to, to predict, I would say yes. Um, it just feels like we've seen enough evidence of the Simmons-Embiid Sixers to realize they're not good enough. Um, in the past, you know, you've been able to look at that roster and say, well, they need more shooting, or let's give them number y- another year. They lost a heartbreaker two years ago in Game 7 by a bouncing Kawhi Leonard ball, and that Raptors team went on to win a championship. There have been reasons to give them another chance. This year, this outcome, you can't say that. There is enough shooting around them in Philadelphia, specifically the Seth Curry, who was fantastic in this postseason. Um, th- this isn't a year where they were beat by some boogeyman. Like, they were beat by the Atlanta Hawks, who had never been in this position before. Uh, it's just it's hard to rationally look at this team and say it makes sense to bring them back as constitutes. Now, we can have a separate conversation about what the market is like for Ben Simmons, because I don't believe it's very good. But I do believe Daryl Morey, who, let's remember, inherited Ben Simmons, will aggressively pursue deals for him this offseason. Chris Mannix joining us. In fact, why don't we just kind of uh, get into that a little bit more. I agree with you. In fact, I said so on the show open today. I don't think there is nearly, or they won't get nearly the value for a guy like that they should get. What do you think the market looks like for Ben Simmons? You know, based on the handful of executives I texted with after the game, and understand there, it's it's very much in the moment. So you, you lean towards what you just saw. Uh, it, it, let's say it this: it's definitely not what it was in January. In January, Ben Simmons was a very marketable trade chip to the point where the Sixers, I believe, could have had James Harden if they had flipped Ben Simmons for him. Now. That, you couldn't get that return for Ben Simmons. So at this point, you're looking across the league at teams or at players that are in difficult situations. Now, there's one move, to, uh, uh, Jim, that I think would be really interesting, and that's Portland and C.J. McCollum. And those two teams, they could both use a shakeup, right? Like Portland, their loss to Denver looks worse and worse by the passing week. And they've gone about as far as they can go with Lillard and McCollum. They're kind of the Sixers of the West, in a way. Um, They badly need a defensive-minded player alongside Damian Lillard. That's been a a constant issue for them over the last couple of years, but one of the worst defenses in the entire NBA this year. Simmons would help that. His lack of shooting wouldn't be as big a deal alongside a player like Damian Lillard. On the flip side, you've got Philadelphia, which could certainly use a perimeter scorer, in the way that C.J. McCollum is. So, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but to me, they make comparable contracts. Like, you can you know, do a deal fairly basically, I think. Uh, that, that's something I would explore if I was both, both teams. I'm a big C.J. McCollum guy, but I think that's really interesting, what you just said. Chris Mannix is joining us. So finish that thought, if you would, because you and Howard and Dan Wojcicki were talking about the Jason Kidd situation with the Lakers and the Blazers recently. So what do you make of how that all played out? I don't know. That that felt <laughs> that felt a little soap opery, like you know, somewhat strategically planned from start to finish. I mean, Damian Lillard, who you know, up until this point has not publicly 
endorsed any well, he really has been put in that position because Terry Stotts has been the guy, but hasn't taken a position like this um, at any point in time in the last eight or nine years. So for him to come out and publicly say that he wanted Jason Kidd, to me that felt like a trial balloon planted there to see how that would go over in the Portland market. It didn't go over very well, frankly, you know, amongst uh, you know Portland basketball fans. So that you know, when Jason comes out, Jason, everybody knows, wants a head coaching job, like badly wants to get back into the mix. That felt a little planted. I also, you know, and I'm not, I, this is not something I, I've heard specifically from anyone across the league, but, you know, there's, you know, the Lakers coming off a first-round exit, could there have been part of Jason Kidd that wanted to see if, like, you know, his name was mentioned in enough job offers that the Lakers might decide to elevate him? Uh, you know, we've seen it, stuff like that happen in the past. So I, I thought that was, was, was a very interesting kind of situation that played out. Jason's going to get a job at some point, but the way that kind of played out so publicly and so quickly, something didn't really pass the smell test for me. Chris Mannix joining us. All right, Chris, I'm picking my spots with you because we don't have a ton of time, but in mm-hmm. terms of coaching, what about the Celtics? What kind of a coach are you expecting the Celtics to hire? I think it'll be a former player. I think it will be someone from the assistant coaching ranks. I believe Ime Udoka, uh, a, a coach with the Nets right now, who's paid his dues across the league, is a strong candidate. I believe Darvin Ham, who's now with Milwaukee, is a strong candidate. Uh, they're past the first day interview stage, so they're, they're whittling down their list. I mean, I, I didn't hear what Brad Stevens said today, but uh, he spoke to the media earlier. Um, but I think those two coaches that I named are among the frontrunners. Chris Mannix joining us. Speaking of Milwaukee, if you look at their whiteboard in their locker room, Chris, it indicates they are eight wins away from a title. That is true. They are. Does this feel like a Milwaukee team, this team itself, that can win the entire thing this year? Yeah, it does, based on who they are and what they have in front of them, right? I mean, you look at you know the Suns, the banged-up Clippers, and now the Hawks in Eastern Conference. I would favor Milwaukee in a series against any of those teams. They would be at least the favorite in a series, I think, against any of those teams. And, you know, the Bucks pulled their fat out of the fire in that series against Brooklyn. I mean, if they had lost that series in six games, Mike Budenholz is probably gone. Somebody is getting traded uh, off that roster. Now they're going to go into this Atlanta series as heavy favorites, and I believe deservedly so, uh, with an opportunity to win a championship. So, yeah, I mean, that's a long way of saying this is a Bucks team that not only can win a title this year, but honestly should. And this might be their best chance to win a title for several years. I mean, next year you expect the big three in Brooklyn to be back and healthy. You expect LeBron to be you know, supercharged going into next season. You know, this is the year, if you're a Milwaukee team, that you've got to go get that championship. And, and I think they're equipped to do it. Chris Mannix joining us. Let me skip gears with you. You were interviewing Oscar De La Hoya over the weekend when he said that he wants to call out Floyd Mayweather and said that he has his eye on fighting him. Chris, so what's your reaction to what Oscar said? Generally, what is your reaction to Oscar these days? Well, I mean, I have no problem with Oscar targeting Floyd Mayweather, just like I have no problem with him coming back and fighting Vitor Belfort. I mean, I think that it's better for Oscar to do this than some of the stuff he was talking about earlier when he was talking about fighting Gennady Golovkin. Like, I don't want to see Oscar kind of pancaked on the canvas fighting a, a still, you know, active you know, top middleweight. I don't need to see that. So this is, you know, good for Oscar. Like, this is, this is fine. What I'd like to see from Oscar generally is to be even more committed to promoting than he is right now. He's been a little bit better in the last few months, I've noticed. More active on social media. He was at his event uh, this past weekend. But to me, Jim, Oscar De La Hoya still has the power to be the most influential promoter in boxing. If Oscar took the same approach 
that Eddie Hearn does and Bob Arum does. That's being fully invested in promoting, calling reporters all the time, uh, sit, being at Fight Week on Wednesdays and just being around the media as often as he is. I think he can still be the biggest promoter in all of boxing. He just isn't looking to do that at this point. So I think he's trending in that direction, but the more promoter I see from Oscar and less fighter, I think it's going to be the better. So what, do you think he just does not like that job as much as he likes the other job? Why Why not spend time doing that and not getting hit in the face and making all that money and being that guy as opposed to trying to chase something that happened way before? Like, why would he pick one? Why is he picking this over the other? Yeah, I mean, your competitive spirit dies slowly, Jim. I mean, that's like, you know, boxers as much as anyone come back and stop and come back again all the time. And now there's this big window open for retired boxers to make a significant amount of money. I think that's just what it boils down to. I mean, Eddie Hearn was never a fighter. Bob Arum was never a fighter. They got in at a relatively young age, in the case of Eddie in his 20s, to be boxing promoters. This is what they want to do. I don't think promoting was ever necessarily what Oscar wants, wanted to do. I think he does it because he can make money off it, and he's uh, pretty good at it at times. But you know, I, I think fighting is in his, his blood. Promoting is not. And that's why he, he is going back to this well one more time. That's fair. Really quickly, Chris, do you have any sense of Chris Paul? He's had an enormous postseason, but he is in COVID protocol. Any sense of when he comes out? Not really. And I check in with people across the league all the time. I mean, he does have to go through a couple of negative tests. And now, I, you know, look, there, the protocols that are in place are for basically – players that are unvaccinated because these protocols went in place when there was no vaccination. I don't know how the league's going to handle a vaccinated player, you know, catching COVID and, and how they deal with it. Now there is no timeline yet for Chris Paul to return. I don't know of any negative tests he's had at this point, but I wonder, does he still have to go through the cardiac testing that they usually have after a guy tests negative? Does he have to go through the entire process that tends to take upwards of 10 days before a guy gets back on the floor? That to me is the great unknown. It could be the difference between Chris Paul missing two games and missing five or six. And also, reportedly, there's a shorter wait if you have been vaccinated. Do we know whether or not he has been? I believe he has. Um, that, that's everything I have been told uh, up until that, this point. So, you know, it, it, assuming he continues to test negative, uh, I think it's more probable than not. I, I, I've been told he's also asymptomatic, so... You know, it sounds like it's probably going to be in the shorter end, but I still don't know, and nobody really knows exactly what that date will be. He is a senior writer for SI, an NBA analyst for NBC Sports Boston, a boxing analyst for the Zone, and host of the Crossover NBA Show podcast with Chris Mannix and Howard Beck and other things, too. Chris, great job. Good to have you back. Appreciate you, as always. Thank you. You got it, Jim. This is a metaphor for your business's journey. Sometimes it feels like the world is throwing everything it has at you. And to succeed, you need someone to guide you through. That's what Dell Technologies advisors do. They have the tech advice to help you navigate whatever challenges you're up against and get you safely to where you want to be. For advice on solutions like XPS 13 laptops powered by Intel Evo platform, call an advisor today at 877-ASK-DELL. So let's talk about revenge. I guess if you were to call it revenge, you know, revenge against the virus, revenge against the world, revenge against the golf gods, if in fact there was any kind of revenge at all, if he were a vengeful guy, and he's not, but if you want to call it revenge, revenge would be a dish best served cold. And that being said, John Rom just busted out his chef's hat 
went into the cryogenic freezer and pulled out the coldest dish of revenge golf ever. Because exactly two weeks after getting yanked off the track at the memorial for a positive COVID test and watching 1.7 mil, 550 FedEx Cup points, a world number one ranking, and his sixth tour victory go from a lock to a pile of smoldering ashes, John Rahm is your 2021 United States Open champion. I mean, there's getting yourself up off the mat, and then there's what John Rahm did this week at Tory. Just about anybody else would have, could have, probably, almost certainly would have gone into a spiral after what happened to him at Muirfield. But he didn't. Dude kept his dome. He said the right things. He cleared protocol. He owned it. He was accountable. And then he went toe-to-toe with a USGA setup, and he knocked it the hell out. If you settled into your couch for your annual Father's Day gift of peace, quiet, and a final round of the U.S. Open, you saw one of the most star-studded leaderboards in major championship history. I mean, the likes of Rory, Brooks, Bryson, Colin, Xander, Wolf, Casey, JT, Louie, Jordan, and DJ. Like all of them at some point in their final round had at least a look at this thing. And of course, so did John Rahm. But right about the same time that this was shaping up to be like the craziest, most compelling major ever, or one of them, the collective wheels started to come off. And I'm not talking about a few lug nuts. I'm not talking about a hubcap or two rolling down the fairways of Tory. I'm talking about tires and axles careening off the La Jolla cliffs and right into the Pacific Ocean. Brooks made the turn at 32. He stumbles in at 37. Colin and Casey go out in 32. They come home in 38. Xander made four bogeys and could not post a number. Matt Wolf shot four over in the last 10 holes alone. JT had a couple of doubles on the back. DJ tripled number 10. Rory played the back nine at three over. And, of course, Bryson. Science himself. Bryson DeChambeau, who was the defending champion, led the U.S. Open yesterday, coming down the stretch, and somehow, someway, this dude just collapsed in spectacular fashion. I mean, spectacularly. Two bogeys, a double, and a freaking quad on his way back to the house. He went out in 33 with the lead at the U.S. Open, and came home with the most brutal, I mean, really unfathomable, 44. 44 you're ever going to see. It's as if the guy somehow just completely forgot how to play golf. And it happened on live TV, in real time, on the back nine of a major that he was defending and leading. Like, I'm not even kidding, or embellishing, or exaggerating. In the least, when I tell you, There are hundreds, maybe even thousands listening right now to this show that could go out there and post a better back nine number in U.S. Open conditions at Torrey South than what he did yesterday when he dropped 44 on the field. I mean, that bad. So bad that it's almost impossible to even articulate or put into words. So how about some numbers instead? 
Bryson goes from first place to T26 in a span of eight holes. You know, if the money were the thing, I would say he went from 2.2 mil and his second major to 88 GUR in an all-time collapse in just over two hours. And before you tell me, like, hey, Rome, I mean, 88 grand is 88 grand. Right. But 88 grand is not 2.2 mil. That's not easy to do, what he did. In terms of the entire field, like, as I mentioned, it, it was like, it was like a Kentucky Derby field where you load 20 of the best horses into the gate. And then by the time they turn for home, it suddenly is a two-horse match race between John Rahm and Louis Oosthuizen. I mean, that's not what anybody expected. Not when you had 20 of the finest loaded into the gate. And while everybody was falling off and fading, three of the weirdest things ever happened one right after the other. You had Mackenzie Hughes getting his golf ball stuck in a tree along with his U.S. Open hopes. Weird. Bryson's errant shot came to rest on a 12-pack of a smuggled-in Stella. Weird. And you had a streaker run onto the 13th hole with a club and a couple of balls and took two shots before the cops tackled him to the ground. I'm not being clever with that. That's just what that was. So the best show had turned into a bleep show. And the bleep show had turned into a clown show. And it all happened on a dime. Yet, there were the last two. Rom and Louis O. Rom was way ahead of Louis on the track because he started three shots off the lead. And Louis was in the final pairing. After going out in 33, Rombo had evaporated Louis' margin and pulled into a tie for the lead. Louis goes birdie-birdie on 9 and 10. Takes a two-shot advantage into the final eight holes, but that's when John Rahm went legend. At the U.S. Open, pars are gold, and Rahm rattles off seven straight to start his back nine. Then, trailing by one on 17, with 25 feet between him and a tie at the U.S. Open late, he does this. John Rahm to five under par. Incredibly brass. And no doubt Louie could hear that three holes back. Then he looked up and he saw it on the leaderboard. But that was just a precursor to Rom's truly iconic moment on the par 5 18th. After missing the green on his second, he played the headiest bunker shot you'll ever see. He didn't take on the flag because of the pond right behind it. Nope. Instead, he splashes his third shot up above the hill some 18 feet and left himself a really slippery bender for Bird. And if 17 was great, 18 was unbelievable. Another one is landed at the 72nd hole, this time for Long to take the lead in the U.S. Open. I mean, this dude, that's the moment you dream about. Everybody. Everybody, because everything is on the line with no sand left in the hourglass, and he drains that putt on that stage from that spot. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, truly epic. All of a sudden, Louis is chasing a shot with three to play. He pars 16. He duck hooks his drive into the penalty area on 17. 
a mistake that you can't make in that situation. A bogey there meant that he needed an eagle on 18, but a bad drive on the closing hole took him out of that play. And just like that, John Rahm is your U.S. Open champion. I mean, it looked like a major that was going to be won in a playoff between maybe three or four guys. Instead, it was won on the driving range where Rahm was keeping loose in the event that Louis made a three. So when Torrey fought back and wrecked everybody on the back nine, John Rahm was out there ducking, weaving, countering, and landing a couple of haymakers on 17 and 18. I mean, it was masterful. So congrats to him on winning his first major at his favorite place in the world and for being the only guy up to the fight yesterday. Well-deserved, well-earned, and especially when you consider what he got up off the mat for and from. Amazing performance. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkled donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms that your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Learn about these investment products and more at Investor.gov. Learn about these investment products and more at Investor.gov your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. The Isaac Bruce Foundation. We are joined by Isaac Bruce. Isaac, good to have you back. How are you? Hey, Mr. Rome. I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. Good. Good to have you on. So bring me up to date. You and I spoke last February, right after it was announced that you were going into the Hall of Fame. Of course, that plan at that time was for you to be inducted last August. Everything changed. And a few weeks after the class was announced, we had a whole different look at it. So bring me up to date. What have the last 16 months or so been like for you? Uh, you know, kind of like a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of uh, quarantining, uh, just getting to know uh, oneself a little bit better, uh, growing, uh, spending time with my family. And, you know, once everything started to kick back up, started getting back in preparation for a uh, celebration that we have going in August, man. So it's a Great time, uh, planning on uh, having a lot of fun and handing out a lot of public uh, thank yous. So that's the process right now. Now, I appreciate that. Isaac Bruce joining us. I appreciate that, and I appreciate the answer, especially the part about getting to know yourself a little bit better. I think we all have. So two months ago, the gold jacket was actually delivered. What yeah. was that moment like? Oh, that was so real, man. I mean, you, you see uh, iconic pieces of clothing, material, and uh, jewelry, uh, but just to have one actually in your hand, in your possession, and and have the the, the ability to uh, try it on and put it on, and and uh, I think I just wore it about just about in every room of my house, uh, outside, uh, took some personal pictures. Uh, it was fun, Jim, um, just having it on, and, you know, I've seen some of the greats with uh, jackets, uh, the Terrell Owens, the Jim Browns, guys uh, who have made tremendous contributions to the game of football that we all love. Isaac Bruce joining us. I also love that response, too. Now, the thing is, Isaac, when you get that jacket, you actually have to give it back so they can have it ready for you in Canton in August. So what was it like to have that thing for a while, rock it for a while, and know that you have to give it back? Oh, man, it's like it's like being a kid again, man. When you get your first bicycle, uh, a better question for you is to ask me, have I sent it back already? And that answer would be no. Um, now, a better question you know, I, would be, are you going to send it back? Because they're going to demand it. 
Uh, indeed, they are. But you know, just when you get it, man, it's it's hard. It's hard to send it back. I mean, because it's a culmination of uh, a lot of people that help you get to that moment. And you know, I want to show it off to them, uh, give them an opportunity to you know touch it, maybe take a personal picture with it uh, if they if they can. But don't post anything right now. But you know, it's hard to send it back, Jim. I mean, a, a couple of my classmates. I heard you know Jimmy Johnson talk about how hard it is for him to send it back and. You know, eventually we will. We'll get it back to Canton for the celebration to make sure that, uh, you know, everything's in proper uh, place for the celebration. But, you know, I have to warn them that probably have to dry clean mine before we uh, do that celebration. I like it. Isaac Bruce joining us. Yeah. So the Hall decided to delay your induction for a year instead of doing some sort of online or Zoom induction. You know, you've yeah. mentioned this already that there's so many people you want to thank and you want to mention. What do you think it's going to be like then to go in with all of your class and the class of 2021, you get to do this in person with your friends Correct. and your family. What do you think that's going to be like as an experience? Well, I'll tell you what, as, as a fan, I'm also a fan of football, uh, just being around those great players, uh, those who have come, come before me, the, the very shoulders of the people who we're, we stand upon, uh, and, and just being able to you know, kind of mix and sh- share and hear stories from these guys. I think it's going to be extra exciting. I mean, I'm still a fan of the game. I think the Pro Football Hall of Fame Museum, Museum is just awesome. Any football fan uh, that's been a, been a fan of this game should, should, you know, should make that pilgrimage to Canton just to see it. And um, it, it's inspirational, and that's what it's called. It's deemed that. So just to be around so many great people who were at the very top of uh, a profession, I think I can learn a lot from those guys and uh, be able to you know, share some of their stories in my public speaking adventures. We are talking to Isaac Bruce. So, of course, Isaac, when you go into the Hall of Fame, you have to decide who it is you want to present for your induction. For those who don't know, who did you settle upon? Not settle upon, but who did you decide upon and why? Uh, Samuel Bruce. That's my older brother. Uh, He's going to be part of my presentation along with Tony Wiley, uh, uh, another person that's very, you know, I felt like was very instrumental in my development as a professional football player. But my brother Samuel is the actual one who introduced me or, or, or imparted the love of football to me. I mean, just growing up watching him play, his Little League practices, his Little League games, and always hearing his name called over the, you know, over the speaker, from the announcer speaker, and just really seeing the way he played the game, where his approach uh, made me want to play it the exact same way. And, it, you know, I, I didn't feel like I, I had really reached the mountaintop until I beat him in a foot race or beat him in one-on-one basketball. And from that standpoint, I felt like I was I was legitimate in what I was attempting to do. Mm, Isaac Bruce joining us. All right, how about a couple of quick thoughts about the Rams and what you yeah. see from them right now? What were your initial thoughts when they made that deal for Matthew Stafford? I am a wide receiver as well. I was really excited about it. Um, you're talking about a guy who will get some votes as far as the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, when his career is over, Matthew Stafford. I mean, I believe if he were to retire right now today, he'd probably get some votes. I mean, the guy's got 45,000 career passing yards. Um, I, I felt like he's never had uh, a coach that's on the caliber of Coach McVay, a guy that can really mix it up uh, as far as pre-snap reads are concerned, can really keep a defense on its heels. Uh, just to be, you know, in a connection, uh, you know, with Coach McVay, I think, I think he's really going to blossom this year. Uh, you know, adding that mix to what we did defensively last year, I think we can really, really win this uh, NFC West once again, uh, which I believe is the best division in football, considering the quarterback play, uh, the head coach 
head coaches that are calling the offensive side, side offensive plays of the ball. And I just think we're the we're that team that's going to come out of that NFC West. And I'm excited about what what, what we brought in the two two Atwells. I think he'll add a lot to what we do offensively. Deshaun Jackson being able to take that top off the defense, I just think it just opens up everything Sean McVay wants to do that he was kind of handcuffed in doing a couple of years uh, later with you know when when golf started to kind of straight to the left. So just having Matthew Stafford in and that combination, man, I'm expecting big games this year. Isaac Bruce joining us, Hall of Fame class of 2020. We have a few moments and a few more things to discuss with him. Isaac, really quickly, in the build-up to this year's draft, there were comparisons made between you and Heisman Trophy winner Devontae Smith. What was yeah. your reaction when you heard those comparisons, and do you see any of yourself in him? You know what? To be honest, I, I, I do. Um, I felt like uh, his college career was probably 10 times better than, you know, my college career. Uh, uh, that being said, you know, with the competition that he played against in the SEC, uh, you know, people, he played not only against the players, but SEC uh, coaching. I feel that it's very similar to what, what, what happens in the NFL. So when you come out every week uh, with a defensive staff that's geared to stop you with NFL players, and you perform at the level that you did, I, I think his game translates directly to the NFL, and I think he'll be a great pro. I feel like he was a great pick for the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, a guy who can, in my opinion, he will be very similar to what Julio Johnson, Julio Jones performed in, in Atlanta. I mean, mm-hmm. just a, a guy who can get open, he can separate, he catches the ball in the crowds. And when he went against LSU in college, man, which was, which is considered defensive back university, he, abolished, he just annihilated those guys. So I'm expecting great things from him. Uh, I think he's a great, humble kid, uh, coachable, and, and he's going to make a lot of noise in the league. Isaac Bruce, my guest. Now you're doing an online sweepstakes for the Isaac Bruce Foundation. Yeah. It involves a trip to Canton for the induction ceremony. It's going to be such an enormous weekend in and of itself. Lay this out for me. What is involved in that prize package, and how do people get involved? Well, you can get involved by going to letsengage.com slash Isaac, I-S-A-A-C. That's how you spell my name. And fans have a chance to win a once-in-a-lifetime Pro Football Hall of Fame experience. The grand prize is a round-trip airfare for two, three-night hotel stay for friends and family at the very hotel where my friends and family and my former teammates will be staying, two tickets to the sold-out pre-enshrinement tailgate, two tickets to the 2020 class enshrinement. So, I think it's it's very special, not only for Los Angeles Rams fans and St. Louis fans, but just football fans in general. Because, like I said, if you love football, Canton should be one of your destinations just to really see where uh, this game that we play, that we this game that we love, where it all started, and the people who started it. So it's very easy. Just go to that website, letsengage.com slash Isaac. One more thing about that, Isaac, is it's an amazing opportunity for somebody to experience that weekend. But I want to make the point, the money raised is going to the foundation, but specifically the Flight 300 program. And this goes back to when you graduated high school. You had a scholarship to a junior college here in California, but struggled to find the resources to get there. How did you get there? And then what's it mean for you to be able to pay that forward now? Well, Jim, I got there by the grace of God, man. I, I really can't really pinpoint just that one person that provided those $300 in funds for an airline ticket for myself. But uh, it, it did show up. And that's one of the things when I created the Flight 300 program that, that comes out of the Isaac Bruce Foundation, man. We wanted to provide transportation to college-bound students in need. Um, there's, this is a, a need that's kind of under the surface. 
and a lot of students need it, not only athletes, but the students that are just there for academics. And no applicant is turned away by the program since, since 2006, man. We provide uh, one-way airfare, uh, dorm decor, and we help them with check bags because some, some of the kids get to the, to the counters at the airports and don't have money for their bags to go. So uh, you'd be surprised, but it, it's, it's a reality. And I felt like uh, we could step in there and kind of bridge that gap to relieve some stress from some of these, uh, former, these, stu- these future students so they can go on and just really focus on the academics. Today, though, we're talking about the GOAT, the GOAT of his generation, arguably the GOAT period, a five-time champ, tied for most straps ever. No one has a longer span of winning titles than this guy. He's your 2009, 2011, 2015, 2018, and 2019 smack-off champ. He is Brad in Corona, the BIC. Now, when you talk about the best to ever do it, this guy's handle is one of only two that are in that conversation, right? The other is Shawnee the Cabinasian. He dominated the jungle and won five of his own smack-offs before Brad came along. So what we have now is the best possible situation you could ever hope for, right? Both Brad and Sean are still doing it in their prime. They're both still doing smack-offs. Both Brad and Sean are looking to break that tie and get that coveted sixth title. And that would separate one from the other and then stand alone at the very top. Brad nearly pulled it off last year at Smack-Off 26. I really enjoyed your interview with the first Smack-Off winner, JT, the Brick, earlier this week where he told you the story about how he parlayed one mediocre Smack-Off call into an entire career in radio. I do want to issue a warning to all the guys in the field today thinking they can do the same. First of all, you're not going to win, okay? But secondly, guys, for every JT the Brick, there's about a thousand Steve Carbones, if you know what I'm talking about. Just some dude squeaking through life, barely making ends meet, chasing that dragon for the past 20 years, telling himself he could have been the next Jim Rome and wondering where it all went wrong. Oh, yeah, that reminds me, Jay Stu. I saw you live tweeting the smack off right now. How you doing, buddy? Hope you're well. Ouch. I'll mention this again tomorrow when I profile left, but last year's top three was the tightest podium finish ever. I mean, I know Brad is not in it for the silver. I know Brad's not in it for the bronze. I mean, Brad's playing the game for one reason, one reason only. And that's to rip the gold every single year. So I want to say no shame in silver. But you know Brad wanted nothing to do with that. Just no strap. I mean, he is championship or bust, right? In his last three events, though, he has finished no worse than second. So it goes without saying, he and Leff are the ones to beat this year. And Stucknut agrees. The Stucknut odds also read the same way. So right around 2018... Brad stopped being a once-a-year caller and turned into a once-every-few-months caller. And it was great. I loved it. And the show was so much better for it. In fact, we owe the entire Silk Bra Tito thread to Brad. He was the one who brought it to light way back in May of 2020. Now, after Silk lost the election with 4% of the vote and Garrett Ritt did a segment for his birthday... 
Brad called in in November of 2020 to talk about both of those things. Happy trails, bro. Why don't you call Hawk and you guys can head up to Oregon this weekend, smoke some crack, eat some shrooms. Rome, how quickly after Oregon legalized all those drugs did Hawk send you an email asking whether he could move there and telecommute? For those of you who were lucky enough to miss the actual Garrett Ritz segment, he spent 15 minutes rambling like a very boring version of Norm McDonald, just excitedly pronouncing words that didn't really add anything to his terrible stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to see uh, Bruno Mars there in uh, Vegas. Uh, you know, Vegas. Uh, last concert before COVID-19. And uh, anyway, there. Sitting on some really expensive Garth Brooks tickets. And uh, can't sell them, though. Can't sell them. Mostly, mostly due to COVID-19. Rit, you suck. And if those are your best stories, dude, I feel sorry for anyone who's ever had to talk to you at a party. I mean, there are some things that are <laughs> there are some things that are better in playback, and then there's that. Like, how is that not like the funniest thing ever? Rit, it just is, dude. He nailed you, old man. That's exactly how you sound and look. That that is absolutely incredible. That that is incredible, incredible enough <laughs> that I almost want to hear it again. And by almost wanting to hear that again, what I mean is. Play that again, Alvin, right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to see uh, Bruno Mars there in uh, Vegas. Uh, you know, Vegas. Uh, last concert before COVID-19. And, uh, anyway, yeah, right, anyway. Sitting yeah, that's really amazing. That is so good. I mean, almost getting lost in that is the BIC saying that Adam Hawk went to Portland to smoke crack and eat shrooms when the laws changed with Silk. But Silk and Rit are just the latest casualties from the BIC. Dude's been stacking bodies for over over a decade around here, including Matt in L.A. Matt in L.A. Stop making jokes about Belly Clarkson, dude. You're fatter than Belly Clarkson. It doesn't make sense. You can't make fun of someone for being fat when you're fatter and uglier than they are. That's not how this works, dude. Matthew is a troubled young man, Jim. I I don't know if you've ever checked out his Twitter feed, but his posts are borderline insane. He's like an even dumber version of Ray Lewis, if that makes any sense. He wakes up every morning and posts, Thank you, God. God is amazing, which is fine. But then he chases that with four pictures that are so random, they look like one of those tests you have to take on a website to prove you're not a robot. We don't need to see pictures of a peacock next to a beware of dog sign stop taking drugs dude i mean at this point i don't even know why i say things like the alleged goat i mean nothing against left left's amazing left's amazing but when i hear some of this in playback there's nothing alleged about this guy right i mean absolutely amazing phone calls i mean dude i don't believe you just did him the way you did him in that comparison to belly clarkson i mean a really unfair fight but, as Mills Lane would say, I'll allow it. And I did. And it was awesome. Like when Brad teed off on CrossFit guy back in the day. I don't care about your wad or your box or how many of those herky-jerky bastardized pull-ups you can do before blowing out your 38-year-old rotator cuff, all right? Just go work out, leave your cell phone at home, and stop acting like it's a huge surprise that you threw your back out after jerking a bunch of weight up over your head and then squatting it until you peed out your butt. This dude, man. A lot of you hate the best caller to the jungle. You hate the fact that he does not talk sports. 
Here's Brad explaining why he does not talk sports. I don't have any sports takes because I don't have my own sports talk radio show. This is the Jim Rome show, you idiot. No one cares about my sports takes. No one cares about your sports takes. I've never woken up in the morning and gone, gee, I wonder what Mike and Indy has to say about the collective bargaining agreement. You know why? It's because I know the only collective bargaining agreement Mike and Indy's ever been a part of involved four of his buddies, a crack pipe, and a toothless prostitute at the Circus Circus Casino Hotel in Las Vegas. Wow. I mean, how you can argue with that? Let's be real. All of you BIC haters are just that. Haters. Because there's no one anywhere who can deny how good this dude is and what he does and how easy he makes it look. You can't deny that. You just can't. And what is he good at? Namely, wrecking the ever-loving hell out of absolutely anybody and everybody walking planet Earth. Romy, I came to the jungle to drink some beers and talk some smack. Rick and Buffalo is so ugly when he and his wife have sex, she has to close her eyes and pretend he's Tony Kornheiser. Tyler in Shredmonton. I'm the last dude you want to accuse of having an anteater, bro. Canadians are pretty much honorary Euros, which basically guarantees you and your boy Matthew are rocking turtlenecks even when it's hot outside, okay? So go take those adult baby wipes you guys carry around with you 24-7 and clean out some of that schmeg before you come back on my airwaves. Hey, shout out to Cruz Pedragon for volunteering to put the smack-off winner's name on his race car for one race. Cruz, I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth here, but dude, this ain't the Indy 500, man. You race NHRA drag cars that last for like five seconds. The only thing quicker than that with less publicity would be if Vic and NoCal volunteers to shout out the winner's name the next time he has sex. Ah, ah, Brad, Brad and Corona! Mark in Hollywood. What do your parents tell their friends that you're doing out here exactly? Last week, Matt in Vancouver called in and uh, admitted that him and Tyler had a shared calendar appointment for a northern sando with my wife. Matt, I'm confused. Uh, when you kick my wife out of your northern sando, that just leaves two dudes left in the sando, so it's an all-meat protein-style Canadian sando? If the Mant brothers were horse owners, their stables would consist of one Zenyatta, that's you, Jim, and about 50 of those zebra-painted donkeys that tourists take pictures with when they go down to Mexico. I afraid he won this thing last year and he took the computer as his prize? Giving a 92-year-old guy a computer is borderline elder abuse, Rome. I'm not saying times are hard for Mark in Hollywood, Jim. What I am saying is the only acting work he's had lately consists of trying to convince the cashier at Walmart that the dog food he buys once a week is actually for a dog and not for him to chow down on in the parking lot like they've caught him doing on the regular. Seriously, Rome, I don't know if you've seen Left's ears lately, but I'm pretty sure with those radar dishes tacked to the sides of his head that that dude can listen to your show without ever actually turning on his radio. Rumor has it he can hear a whisper from over 50 miles away. Hey, Left, you're a gimmicky little bitch. I mean, I'm going to say that any one of 50 of those things probably should have gotten me fired. And they didn't even come out of my mouth. He is Alan Shipnook. Alan, what's going on? Good to have you back. How are you? I'm happy to be back, Romy. Thanks for having me. So good to have you. I was looking forward to it. Listen, you've got a great, great piece up for Golf Digest on John Rahm's win yesterday. What was going through your head? Let me start right here, Alan. What was going through your head when you watched one big player after another implode on the back nine the way they did? Well, of course, I was enjoying it because that is the essence of the United States Open. Uh, you need carnage. It, it's designed to be 
a war of attrition. I mean, the way they set up the golf course, it's supposed to push the players to the breaking point physically, mentally, you know, metaphysically. It's just, that's what this tournament's all about. And so it was delicious. But you hope in the end someone will do something dramatic to uh, make it memorable. You don't, you don't want, you don't want, you don't want the, the champion to limp home. And so uh, when Ron made that putt on 17, you could kind of feel, feel the moment building and, of course, that that, that uh, instantly famous putt on 18 to essentially win the United, you know, win the U.S. Open was that was the moment we needed. I mean, 13 years after Tiger hold a similar putt to the same pin position on the same green, uh, it was really a, a, an incredible exclamation point on a very memorable final round. No doubt, Alan Chipnook joining us. So why don't we talk about each of those two putts? What about when he got to 17, that 25 footer for birdie? What did you make of that putt? What was what was interesting is, well, as you, you mentioned, all the players who were, were blowing up out there, obviously Bryson DeChambeau was the most spectacular self-immolation, but Roy McIlroy, Colin Morikawa, I mean, Brooks Kepka, these are big-time players, and they were just getting their teeth kicked in by Torrey Pines. And during all that, Ron was just making you know these gritty U.S. Open pars, which is what you have to do, and he, he just hung in there and uh, – it was impressive the patience he displayed because you, you could tell he was getting a little edgy. He wanted to make something happen. And, you know, that putt on 17 was, was not an easy one. I mean, it had about three feet of break and coming down the hill, but it was like he was finally rewarded. He, he hadn't pushed too hard like some of these other guys. And uh, it was just a, a beautiful kind of t- feel putt. You just feed it down and you just match the speed and the line so perfectly. And he, he really – he deserved that. I mean, he, he played lights out golf the whole way, and he, he just waited. It's, it's kind of like when you're you're on the freeway and you just cruise, and all of a sudden you just step on the gas. That's what it, that's that, that's what it felt like. So, um, I mean, that was that was a harder putt than the one in eighteen. Although, of course, for the moment, my my you know, when when Rob like here we go, you, you could you could do a special coming. Alan Shipnook is joining us. Alan, I thought you had an amazing line in the piece about eighteen. Quote: Holding a putt like this has almost nothing to do with technical proficiency. It is an x-ray of the soul, a referendum on the unseen parts of a golfer that cannot be measured with a track man, heart, guts, balls, end of quote. So that putt on 18, maybe not technically as tough as 17, but what's that putt tell you about this guy's heart, his guts, and, well, you know, his nad? <laughs> well, he needs a wheelbarrow for last of those bits. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, that that every player you know grows up saying they they want to putt to win the U.S. Open until that moment arrives and then so many just just shrink from it and you know Rom has been a a top prospect for a long time I mean there, there's some great stories about when he was an undergrad at Arizona State he was getting Phil Mickelson's pocket regularly and Phil was calling the guys at Callaway saying you need to sign this dude he's like one of the ten best players in the world right now and you know he's in science class and um and so you. You could see this was coming. I mean, Rom's been a consistent winner on the U.S. PJ Tour and in Europe, and he's had a lot of you know, top tens of the majors. Like he was due. We all knew this was going to happen, but this was really the first time he faced that defining moment. And to absolutely gut that putt like he did, um, it 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 just instantly separates him from all these other kind of talented young players who just don't have that that sort of karmic ability to make that putt. I mean, anyone on the PJ Tour can make an 18-footer at any time, but to do it with, with the U.S. Open hanging in the balance was very macho. And 
uh, you know, Tiger Woods established an impossible standard. Like, no one is ever going to close out tournaments, big tournaments, the way that the Tiger did so, you know, ruthlessly. But I think Rom can be a closer of the first, you know, magnitude. And, and golf really needs that. I mean, you know, even Brooks Kepka, who kind of built his brand on, on winning the big ones, the last two years, he's let a bunch get away, including yesterday. I mean, three bogeys in the last six holes, and uh, when he had a beauty, you know prime opportunity to win, and uh, a, a lot of these guys just don't get it done. And and for Rom, you know, to kick down the door like that, it's is really special, and it, it makes you know me and I think everyone else in the golf world quite excited to see where he goes from here. See, I was going to go there next. Alan Shipnook joining us because your piece for Golf Digest opens with this quote: "Sometimes, if we're lucky, the man and the moment collide on the 72nd hole, producing transcendence." Think Seve at St. Andrews or Tiger at Torrey or Phil at Augusta. Time will tell if John Rahm deserves to share the same sentence as those legends. End of quote. You're right, Alan. Time will tell. But if you had to guess or you had to bet, years from now, is he going to deserve to share or deserve to share the same sentence as those legends? I mean, I think he has a chance to 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 be in that pantheon. I mean, you look, you look at Phil all those players had a fatal flaw in some ways, you know, Phil couldn't drive the ball on the planet and Seve got in his own head. And basically he was done in his, in his mid thirties uh, with swing changes and sort of paralysis and tiger, while his game was bulletproof, we know his, his life was a mess off the course and Rom's used to have it all figured out. I mean, from every aspect of his game is incredibly sound. I mean, he hits it a mile. He's extremely precise. He's got these these magic hands, you know. He's sort of a descendant of, of Seve and Jose Mariola Thabo. Uh, you know, Paul Casey told me he's just got those Spanish hands. There's just some, something in the way he tips and pitches that is so beautiful. And he obviously can make the putts that matter. Uh, and he's you know he's married. He's got a kid. He's got this whole support staff around him. And you know, Phil's become a great friend and mentor. And uh, it just seems like he's got everything figured out at age 26. And um, I really think that he's just going to keep going. I mean, there, there's not a golf course setup that doesn't work for him. I mean, he, he can he can shape the ball. He can, he can play all the crafty shots in the wind at the open. He can bomb it at a PGA Championship and in Augusta. He can obviously survive a tough, narrow U.S. Open setup. So, uh, you know, Nick, Nick Faldo has six major championships. He's, he's sort of the gold standard for European golfers. I, I would not be surprised in the least in the least if if rom gets there and then that's a very rarefied air i mean there's only there's only a dozen guys that have won more than that so uh you know it's a long career we've seen a lot of guys get sidetracked you look at rory mcelroy who you know he's gone seven years now without winning a big one and in the prime of what should be the prime of his career and so there's mystifying things that 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 that, that, you know kind of get these players off track but Rom is so focused. He's so single-minded, uh, and he, he's so dedicated. I, I think he's just going to keep going, and it's going to be really fun to watch. I do too. I agree. Alan Chipnook, my guest. Alan, one last thought. You also have another great piece up for Golf Digest about Tiger's win at Torrey in 2008, and how that really was the end of the Tiger era. Although we didn't know it at the time, you know the game has changed. Times have changed. But for instance, how much younger? taller and more powerful are the players now compared to even just 2008? Yeah, there's some interesting stats in that story that I learned in the research. I mean, it has become such a power game, and Tiger definitely attracted a different kind of athlete. And when you 
uh, there's an interesting chart about the average height on tour players, and you, you see a, a huge spike that corresponds with like all these eight and ten year olds who got into the game uh, when when Tiger was doing his thing, and then they reached the tour. It, it you know, I think forty percent now are six two or taller. I mean, the, the stereotype of the little golf nerd who could not succeed in, in other sports, while still there's a grain of truth. I mean, you. There's there's some big boys who are now playing um, the sport and they're swinging the club at speeds that the old timers could not even comprehend. And so, um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the playing field dates to the 19th century. I mean, every sport the athletes are getting bigger and stronger, but they cancel each other out because they're playing defense. So you can you can have a, a six foot nine point guard that would make Bob Cousy you know look ridiculous, but now the dude who's guarding him is six seven and just as quick. And so. It holds the sport in check, but in golf, the, the courses can't keep up. And so we're, that, that's part of the tension in, in the game right now is these modern athletes who are fully optimized in every way with uh, statistics and launch monitors and cutting-edge training methods and diets and sweetest nannies and the whole bit. Um, you know, they, 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 they roll up to a course that was built 100-plus years ago, and it, it just can't contain them. But... You know, from an entertainment perspective, it's fun to watch these guys smash the ball, and I'm not sure if the casual fan worries about, you know, some of these classic courses being rendered obsolete, but uh, for sure the, the, the game has, has changed rapidly. I mean, uh, you know, John Rahm, like, his thighs look like they're you know, on loan from a, a redwood forest. I mean, he just, the amount of force he creates is incredible, and um, but you still have to, you still have to hit the shots, stuff to make the putts, and so that's always going to be the, the differentiator, even even as the game moves more towards a power sport. And uh, that, that's why that's why Rahm in particular is exciting, because he has an old-school feel and touch and knack for scoring that a guy like Bryson DeChambeau or some of these others just, that's eluded them. So um, I, I I think he's he's the best of kind of the old and, and, and the new way. Alan Shipnick, my guest, really quickly, what about DeChambeau? Like, there were a lot of world-class players that completely imploded, but none that came in with 44. Like, what did you think watching what happened to him and exactly what did happen to him other than Torrey? Yeah, it was – I mean, he almost he almost jarred his teeth down. He was one inch from what would have been an, an iconic ace on, on the eighth hole. And even so, that put him in the lead, and he looked so in control. And, you know, Bryson is – He's 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 a head case, right? And it works for him in that he's on this never-ending quest to, to improve and to try and outsmart the game of golf. And he's made some headway, and he, he's made some progress, and he's found some side doors. But ultimately, uh, there there are a lot of demons up, upstairs with him, and he just hit a couple shots, and he, he completely went mental. Um, and when you're when you're swinging the club at the speed he is. When you start holding on a little tight and you start trying to steer it, bad things happen. And he just lost all the freedom with which he'd been playing with. And he had no idea where the golf ball was going. It was incredible to watch. I mean, guys get overpowered by a U.S. Open setup with some regularity, but not when they're at the very top of the leaderboard with nine holes to play. I mean, that was a historic collapse. The shoot 44 when you're leading the tournament at the turn is just utterly mind-boggling. I mean, it's beyond John Vandeveld. Uh, you know, he played great for 71 holes. Like, Bryson completely lost the plot. And honestly, it was delicious. And um, it's fun to watch the torture be visited upon this guy because 
he brings so much of it upon himself. And I like Bryson. I like writing about him. I think he's a breath of fresh air. But uh, at the same time, uh, it's kind of more fun when he's struggling because it just sends him down more rabbit holes and, and who knows what's next. But, yeah, you can't overstate. Um, I mean, that would be like basically an NBA player who's who's got 52 points through three quarters. He went like 0 for 19 in the fourth quarter right. and, it, and got blown out. Like, it's just it's, – in Game 7 of NBA Finals, like, it's just hard to even come up with parallels for how bad that performance was, but uh, it was certainly riveting to watch. Coach Ricky from Tampa. I'm all about this. About time he called. Ricky, good to have you back. What's going on? Jim, how are you doing? Good, good. How you doing, Ricky? I'm doing good. Is there is there one word that we should talk about before... We get started. What's that one word? You know the word. The Nets lost. Why? Totally ridiculous. <laughs> My man. This is, uh, do me a favor. Turn down your radio because it's a few seconds behind you, and I think it's throwing, uh, throwing you off your rhythm, if that's impossible. Yeah, but, I mean, maybe it is totally ridiculous. He is at home. What else is on your mind? So as you're watching this all play out, what are you thinking, Ricky? So I want you, before we get started, look at your Instagram. Look at your Instagram really, really quickly. I told you this was going to happen a while back. If you look at your Instagram, I called everything that's happening right now in the NBA. Right now, everything that's happening. I called it way ahead of time. Ricky, talk to me. Did you, did you DM that to all me? All your messages are there. Okay, you DM'd, you DM'd me all that stuff, right? Absolutely, 100%. Okay. It's all there. Got it. So where does that leave us now? I mean, is your is your phone now ringing off the hook? No, of course not. And I don't even know if that will ever happen, but it won't stop me from trying to get in. Hell no, that's man. That's my goal. You know, that's what I want to do in my career, to enhance my career. So I will continue to try and get in somehow, some way. That's what I'm talking about right there, Rick. You don't give up. Listen, let me ask you this. What about, like, the T-Wolves situation? Have you been monitoring that, and do you think maybe you might have a way in there? I've already reached out to Alex Rodriguez and Mark, both of them. Any response yet? I reached out to Jim on his Instagram page. I reached out to Alex. I reached out to Mark. I have a lot of confidence, my man. I know that I was, if I was given an opportunity, I would win championships in the NBA. There's no question about it. Well, let me ask you this. Would you be willing to accept a role as an assistant in the NBA and work your way up, or are we talking about head coach or bust? No, of course I would, I would accept an assistant coaching position. The problem that I've had is I can't get an interview, period. I'm positive if I can get in front of someone that can see my intensity, my aggressiveness, my knowledge, et cetera, they would realize that I merit a position in the NBA. There's guys coaching in the NBA right now who I destroyed when I was coaching. In the so, CBA, the USBL, the WBA, see, the I, ABA. Well, I, I get they that. Well, I, I get this. I get this, and I believe you, my man. I do. Why do you think, that being said, with all the games you've won and all the guys that you've wrecked and destroyed, that you cannot get a return phone call? Like, the hell is going on here? Why is that? I mean, I'll be honest with you, Rome. I, I want to say it, but I don't, I don't want to jump on that bandwagon because I, I, I know it goes on, and it's been going on for eternity it's still going on today, and it'll probably be going on forever. Mm. But, you know, I don't want to jump on that bandwagon. So I, I really don't want to close all the doors to, to a possibility. So I don't want to answer the question of why I think it's never happened. Listen, I, I can respect this. I think it's, to use a word, 
ridiculous that these doors are not right. opening up for you. I wonder, do you think if, if I were to go in there and, well, I don't want to promise something that I can't deliver on, but theoretically, Ricky, if I were to show teams or any of my sources those DM messages, do you think that would help? And I can't promise you that I will. I'm just posing the question. I have no idea. I, right. I know one thing. If you did know someone and you put me in front of them, the rest would be NBA history. That's what I can tell you. My man. Good night now!